Bretto, can you believe it? The Wellness Summit is almost here. Oh, I'm P. I'm so excited. I don't know what to do with myself. Well, Bretto, it's been two long years since our last Wellness Summit. And if you're listening to this, folks, and don't have a ticket, then... What are you doing? The Wellness Couch family of podcasters gather for two days in Melbourne on Saturday, August 25 and 26, featuring... The Queen of Nutrition, Cindy O'Meara. The rock star of wellness, Dr. Damien Christoph. Connect with your spirit and soul with Barley Bomb survivor, Karen Smith. Self-care is on the menu with Kim Morrison. Master the art of ageing well with the one and only Marcus Pierce. Oh, shucks, Bretto. What about how to recover from rock bottom with Dr. Brett Hill? Master your stress with Dr. Maria Zushman. Get empowered with Imogen Bailey. Female health experts Dr. Andrea Huddleston and Ashley Bond. Master your sleep with Audra Starkey. The natural nutritionist Steph Lowe. Australian Idol winner, Wes Carr. Woohoo! And Quirky Cooking's Joe Witten and Fuad Kassab and a whole lot more. Oh, what a lineup, MP. Seriously, why would you not be coming to the Wellness Summit? Not to mention our world-class exhibition of Australia's most incredible, sustainable wellness products and services. MP, we've done the final layout. There are less than 100 spaces left. And there's only a few discounted tickets available at thewellnesssummit.com. Marcus, be there or be square. Zazen Alkaline Water presents the 2018 Wellness Summit, Saturday, August 25 and 26 at the Collingwood Town Hall. Getting quick, folks. The final release of discounted tickets available at thewellnesssummit.com. See you there, Bretto. Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism. The show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Today, we're going to be talking all about the complexity of autism and stress as it relates to autism. Our guest today has a revolutionary approach which is empowering, and while the approach can be used on the most complex cases of autism, the approach itself is quite simple in nature. It focuses on a lifestyle approach. Why I love today's guest so much is because she thinks like I do. Her holistic Mm. approach to autism aligns with my own viewpoint, and her message truly resonates with me. I am so delighted and very honored to have Dr. Teresa Hamlin all the way from the USA joining us today. Dr. Hamlin is the Associate Executive Director at the Center for Discovery, a premier specialty center for children and adults with complex developmental disabilities, including autism spectrum disorders. She has been active in the field for more than 33 years and is the author of the recently published book, Autism and the Stress Effect. Dr. Hamlin lectures nationally and internationally about the physical, mental, and social development of children as they relate to health and educational practices for those with complex developmental disabilities. She has developed a whole body approach to teaching called the Health E6, which is practiced at the Center for Discovery. Actively engaged in research, Dr. Hamlin oversees the research program at the Centre for Discovery, including the Lab School Initiative that is designed with advanced technology to study the effects of the environment on children with autism. Welcome, Dr. Teresa. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be here with you today, and especially because you're talking about one of my favorite subjects in the world, which is children with autism. So, And I find no matter where I am in the world, the issues are the same and the questions are the same. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of your show today. Oh, I love it. I'm, I feel very privileged to have you on the show. So Thanks. we always start the show with talking about the journey and how I guess got to where they are now. So take it away. Tell us about your background and your journey to becoming so interested in the science behind autism. Sure. Um, Well, I'll say that I started um, in the field about 35 years ago. Um, My undergrad and graduate degrees in college were both on working with complex populations. And I started really with very, very medically involved individuals, you know, 
with a real team approach. So we had physicians on our team, we had clinicians, we had teachers, we had parents, you know, and when you're working with really medically complex kids, all of their body systems are involved and it requires really careful observation, you know, to figure out how the child is doing, especially if they're nonverbal. So you pay really, really close attention. Um, and I think that, that that's where my journey began. Um, you know, so I worked with very, very complex children for about 10 years. And then all of a sudden we started to see a population of children called autism. They had a diagnosis of autism. And what I was understanding in the field from my colleagues is that these were kids who had severe behavioral disorders. So they had, you know, problems with social, you know, social skills and communication and these repetitive behaviors, but they, they were behaviorally disordered kids. And I, I think I used my, my observational skills to say, you know what, there's something more going on here. Um, I don't think these are just behaviorally disordered kids. It seems to me like there are other systems involved here. And, you know, fortunately in, you know, in the center where I work, the Center for Discovery, all under sort of one umbrella, one roof, we have, you know, the best doctors and subspecialty care physicians. We have a whole bunch of clinicians, the OTs, the PTs, the speech pathologists, and we have all the teachers. So we all got together to say, you know what? Um, we need to think about how we're approaching these children because just using a behavioral model is not going to help. And we started talking to parents, you know, and the parents were saying to us, you know, our kids have failed this typical model. So something, you know, something's not right. And, you know, that's, you know, that is where I think I began to become very, very interested to say, you know, I think there might be a better way to help here. Um, and it's been an incredible journey. Um, and I, you know, I think all of us at our center have seen so many children get better um, and so many families, you know, get better as well. So um, it's been very exciting. It, I'm passionate about it. You know, we're only in, it, in our infancy, I think, of where we actually can go. Um, but it's remarkable. And I think, you know, knowing what you do and reading some of, you know, some of the things that you talk about as well, we absolutely are very, very closely aligned with, uh, with what we're doing, with what you're doing as well. So, yeah, so that's, that's been my journey. Yeah. Ah, amazing. And I do love your whole body approach and yeah. everything that the Center for Discovery is doing. And we're going to dive right into that a little okay. bit on, a little bit further on. But first, I wanted to get into what your thoughts are on autism and what you think it is. Because this can be, this can vary depending who you are. So I'm interested on your thoughts on the topic. Yeah. So, and that's what I always say. That's a really difficult question because I don't think anybody really knows yet. Um, you know, from a, from a biomedical standpoint, we're not really sure if we're in our infancy, as I said, there's a lot of genetic testing, you know, that's going on right now. So certainly there's a genetic component, but there's also an environmental component and there seems to be a lot of dysregulation in the body itself. So it's, it's a brain and body problem. And it, you know, it is, it is really, really complex. And sometimes I talk to families about the fact, you know, it's, it's almost where cancer, we're, we're where we are in autism, where cancer studies were maybe 40 years ago. So, you know, today, if, you know, if somebody says they have cancer, you know, we say, okay, what, where is it in the body? What type is it? What stage is it? Um, you know, and we know something about the outcome then and, and treatment, you know, where we are with autism right now is, you know, if a mom says to me, my child has autism, it, you know, you know, nothing, you know, you, you don't understand what treatment you're not understanding what outcome, you know, you may know a little bit about severity, but that still doesn't even tell you about outcome because higher functioning kids with autism are the ones who are committing suicide, you know, in, in their, you know, uh, early teenagers and, and, uh, or early twenties. So we, we don't know a whole lot yet. What we do know though, you know, from some of the research is that the autonomic nervous system, the cerebellum, which is, you know, responsible for balance and movement and those kind of things, the frontal lobe is involved. Um, you know, the, the gastrointestinal system seems to be abnormal. There are immune problems. So there's a, a whole bunch of things that are happening and yet they happen differently in, in different children. So it's highly complex. We're, 
you know, as I said, we're in our infancy, it's going to be quite some time before we really understand the underlying mechanisms and really have very, very targeted treatments. But I'm hopeful, as I think I've seen, you know, and I'm sure you have over the past decade or so, that people are starting to ask different questions. They're seeing it more than a behavioral disorder now, and they're understanding, you know, that these kids do have other medical problems. So um, I'm really hopeful that we're going to get there. Um, you know, so, so yeah, so it's, it's highly complex to, to, yeah. uh, to question. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And, you know, I think this is really a new way of thinking because previously thought we, you know, we thought it was just a brain based condition and we can't do anything about it. Um, do you, do you find that your way of thinking this new way of thinking that it is a whole body condition that is this becoming more accepted um, we're a center of excellence for New York State. So we've been doing a lot of a lot of training now for the past couple of years. And people, I will say, are much more open to it only because we have mounted a lot of data. And when I say to, you know, to other physicians or teachers who are working with children and, and parents know this, but I say, you know, does the child sleep through the night? And most of them say, you know, no, not on a regular basis. So you know, they're recognizing that they have sleep disorders. And then when you think about gastrointestinal problems, you know, do they have regular bowel movements? And so often these children have severe constipation, which could be a result of chronic stress. Um, you know, many of the children either have seizure disorders or they develop seizure disorders in their teens. Um, you know, there's a lot of obesity, again, could be a factor of underlying, you know, chronic stress conditions, but it could be something else as well. So when you start to point out the fact that there are these other problems, um, people who are working with these kids say, you know what, you're right, I've never thought of that, you know, so I think they need to see it, they need to understand it, they need to see the data. And when you present that, um, they're, they're much more open. You know, there, there are a group of people who are still sort of, I almost, I want to say zealots on the other end who say, no, it's a behavioral disorder and you just need one treatment and that's that. But, you know, that's been happening now for 15 or 20 years. And there are a lot of kids that are not getting better. As a matter of fact, some of them actually get worse under those conditions. So um, I'm hoping that that group is going to come along as well, because there isn't, you know, that, you know, that works for some, but it doesn't work for all. And we're in this to help everybody. You know, we've got to figure out every kid matters. So I think, um, you know, I think they're coming along. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You, you mentioned yep. about the gut problems, sleep disorders, seizures. Um, mm -hmm. Are these co-occurring uh, conditions that go along with autism? Are they part of autism? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that again is one of those things where you will have um, some physicians and clinicians say that there are certain subtypes of autism, that that is absolutely a part and, and actually they cluster together. Um, others will say that those are just conditions that, you know, seem to happen with autism, but they're actually separate conditions. Um, you know, knowing what I know and the kids that I'm treating, I think that they are clearly a part of the autism. Um, and there's some underlying mechanism, whether it's autonomic nervous system driven, whatever it is, but these problems are coming out of the autism. That's just part and parcel of this diagnosis, as is, you know, severe anxiety as well. That seems to come right along with the autism, but it's different gradations, you know, and it, and it can change over time. You know, um, you know, part of the concern is that it seems to actually get worse, you know, in the late teen and the early 20s and the 30s. Um, if those if those problems aren't treated, they get worse and the autism seems to get worse. So whether whether it's separate or or one condition, it doesn't matter. What 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 has to happen is that all of these things need to be treated. And you know they need we need evaluate evaluative tools, you know, to understand, you know, whether kids have these problems or not. So mm. Absolutely. But these are questions we hear all the time. <laughs> well, I think yeah. you hit the nail on the head. I think, you know, we've got to look at the whole child. It doesn't matter, mm -hmm. you know, their diagnosis aside, you know, that's really just a label to, to help us sometimes understand what a child might be, um, what symptoms they might present with. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we do need to look at what is actually happening with this child because, as you mentioned earlier, 
every child is different. So we need to take that really holistic whole child approach and mm-hmm. um, look at what symptoms, whether it's sleep, seizures, gut problems, mm-hmm. behavioral, psychological, mm-hmm. um Mm-hmm. physiological exactly. biological it doesn't matter the whole body really needs to be taken into account that's exactly right mm-hmm. yep so yep. in terms of complexity i have um seen you've done a talk and that's on youtube mm-hmm. um on the complexity of autism can you talk a little bit about the complexity Oops, because just froze on my screen here <laughs> Um, the complexity of autism because you do talk about this a little bit in your book as well and I know that these co-occurring, co-occurring um, factors do play a part in that but if you could enlighten us on the complexity of autism. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, as, as I said, um, there are these other medical problems that occur in children and they don't just occur in isolation. What can happen is that um, they can interact with each other and actually make the condition much worse. And indeed, when you look at some kids, so there's a high prevalence of GI problems. There's a high uh, prevalence, as I said, of the seizures, of immune problems, of gastrointestinal problems. And then there are the mental health problems where you have, you know, the anxiety um, you know, OCD behaviors, and even, you know, suicide attempts in the population. But they can, they can co-occur together such that you even have higher rates of cancer, um, higher rates of Parkinson's later on, you know, um, in, in age. Um, so that, I mean, and, and they can, you know, as I said earlier, they can change over time. So they can be worse in the teen years, they can um, get a little bit better from time to time, um, and then get worse again. Um, and some kids have, you know, mild, mild forms of all of these things and other kids have more severe. Um, and yet again, it still doesn't tell us a lot about outcome yet. So, but, but we do need to screen for all of these conditions. Um, you know, we're working and we should release over the next year, we're working on a set of screening tools that would be, you know, widely available that look at um, sleep disorders, gastrointestinal problems, general medical conditions, um, and then um, uh, the nutritional part, the eating and nutrition, because as we know, these kids, many of them have highly selective diets um, they self-select, and so they have immune, uh, and nutrient, and vitamin deficiencies as well, which can cause other kinds of problems, um, and they mostly end up being obese. So it's a lot. Mm. <laughs> it's a lot, and I set of screening tools that are very that you know that are very very organized in terms of what questions they ask could really really help families, and it could help physicians who are treating these children. Mm. So I think it's important. And, and, you know, we are, we are moving, you know, with some of the experts to release some of those tools. Mm. What I found interesting about your talk was that you said that often the autism community is operating in these little individual silos and that the health professionals and the parents and, and no one seems to be talking to each other. So we all have this little piece of the autism puzzle, but we're not putting yes. it together. Mm -hmm. That's a huge problem. So we're mounting. So each little discipline is collecting all of this data. And I talk about a data paradox, right? We know so much in isolation, but it's never brought together such that you get a complete picture of the child. And that's a reflection of the system itself, I think. You know, doctors are in one place and they only have a limited amount of time teachers are during the day and they're working with the kids. Clinicians are often pulling kids out and doing their thing. And then parents are, you know, bringing their kids to the subspecialist and the poor parents. I mean, they, you know, run around with volumes of information and they're the ones that are trying to put it all together. And it's really hard, (laughs) you know, Um, and they get really, really frustrated uh, very quickly. So, Um, you know, we need a better system of how to put all of this data together. And that's another part of our research, developing robust data systems that you can capture all of this and develop, you know, appropriate algorithms that can, you know, um, understand that data in a very meaningful way and and give it back to us. But it is a problem. It's a system-wide problem. No matter what country I go in, everybody is sort of doing their own thing and we haven't brought it all together yet. 
Um, so it's really important. And I think it's usually the parents that bring it all together, isn't it? Um, you know, with the diet, you know, we're sort of not looking into diet until parents say, hey, this is working for my child. And it's not until we get enough, um, you know, individual case studies, I suppose, of parents who say, yes, this kind of diet is working. We're seeing benefits. We're seeing results that we sort of start to do the research into it. So we're sort of a bit slow on that research front, aren't we? We definitely are, but you are absolutely right. I mean, anything I think I've ever learned, um, or even if I do learn something from from another professional or whatever, I go back to the parents to say, does this make sense to you? <laughs> you know, are you seeing this? Yeah. Um, and they, they certainly can tell you, you know. Um, and so I think, you know, having clinicians and, and professionals really listening to parents is extremely important. Um, they know their kids the best, you know. Um, and I think the parent groups are the ones, you know, when parents get together, they're, they're the ones that are pushing the system forward. And that's, that's really, really important. Um, you know, we worry so much about, you know, uh, money that's not going into research to really help kids in real time. There's a tremendous amount going into genetics and, you know, that has to be done. There's no doubt that's really, really important, but there has to be money that's going into programs right now that, you know, that, you know, parents are leading to a certain extent. Um, you know, they know what's working for their kids and, and um, you know, we have to invest in that as well. So mm, absolutely, absolutely. Now you're the associate executive director at the Center for Discovery. And I have to say, I will be coming over to see you one day when I get to America. It's definitely on my to-do list. It is just amazing what you guys are doing over there. Um, you're part of some groundbreaking programs and research. So can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about the Center for Discovery? Because I'm sure there's a lot of parents here in Australia who aren't aware of the center and what you're doing. So what does it look like? Where is it based? Who attends? What's the mission? Tell me all about it. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So it's a lot. It's, it's, um, it's a fantastic place. You know, it's designed for children. We do have adults too, but it, it is absolutely a place um, where every kid would want to be. Um, we're located in Harris, New York, which is about an hour and a half outside of New York City. It's northwest of New York City. It's a beautiful country setting. We are on 2,000 acres of land, so it's very big. Um, we have a lot of children, so we're a residential program, so we have 300 individuals who live with us. We're a school program, a certified school program. So we have another um, 280 children who just come to school there. We have a medical center, so it's open to parents and to the public. So if they have a child who has autism and they want to come and see our subspecialty physicians, they can do that as well. So we serve, you know, literally thousands of people through the medical center and through these other programs. Um, we are a center of excellence for New York State. Um, we have the, the full research component. We have researchers from the, all of the major universities throughout, you know, throughout the United States. Um, we are in the middle of designing a children's hospital. So we'll have a children's specialty hospital, which is designed for just a short-term stay, um, you know, to really do complete biomedical work up on children. Um, they can stay upwards to six months if they needed to, but we're looking at much shorter stays, uh, most likely. Um, where we can bring all of our resources to bear and really work with the family. Families will be able to stay there. Um, they can participate in the training and in the evaluations for the children. Um, but we're just, we have um, a, a huge farm. We grow all of our own food. Um, we really pay close attention to the environment, so the physical environment as well as the natural environment. And wherever we can, we build um, buildings and use colors and, um, you know, use building construction materials that um, help reduce stress that are non-toxic for the kids. Um, you know, these are kids who are chronically stressed all the time. And our research tells us that, you know, we know that for sure. So anything that we can do, whether it's toxic stress, whether it's social stress, you know, my staff are trained that they have to be generous and, and beautiful with kids. You know, they have to be loving or they're not going to work at the Center for Discovery. There's absolutely no way that a child is ever going to be yelled at, that is ever going to be, you know, 
um, negatively, you know, um, enforced or anything. That's just never going to happen at the Center for Discovery. Um, you know, our kids deserve the best and they cannot, they cannot experience added stress. They really can't. We're there, you know, to help them get better. So there's a lot of staff training. There's huge wellness programs. There's gyms and horses and cows and chickens. And uh, it's just, you know, any kid, you know, um, we have a daycare program and then we have summer programs for school kids. So even our local school children who come through, you know, often say, can I go to school here? You know, so it's just one of those places that, you know, it's magical. You know, you, you can, and it's, 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 it, in a sense, it feels spiritual too. When you go there, you feel, you feel love, you know, and parents often say that, like they'll walk away and say, this is a place where, you know, I can let my child live. And that's really hard for a parent to, uh, to place their child residentially. It's really, it's the hardest thing, you know, a family will ever do. And so, you know, for a parent to be able to trust us with their five or six year old, um, you know, we have to be good. So, mm. so yeah, so we would love to have you. Yeah. Uh, oh, is, I would love to see it in action. I mean, it's nothing like I've ever seen before. I haven't seen anything like it. And what I love yeah. is it comes from such an integrated model. Um, you know, looking at the organic farming, you know, having a look on the website and the kids um, out there on the farm. Like I love that nature, natural component of the center. Um because you know we don't we're not tapping into that these days it's all technology driven um which is important too but i think we we do lose touch with nature um and real food and where food comes from and just a real lifestyle approach yeah absolutely you know the food is a big component of ours only because you know kids come in on these on these you know sort of processed, I, I will say terrible diets, you know, often just because they'll only eat chicken nuggets, you know, or French fries or cheese or whatever. And so, you know, we, we do, we do blood tests on that, you know, that's part of our medical component. And we realize that they're significantly deprived in terms of essential nutrients and vitamins and things. So we very quickly through the farm by getting them to interact with the cows and the chickens and, you know, they help grow their own food they eat it readily then, you know, it's not very difficult for us to get a child who's only eaten three things, you know, for their first 10 years of their life to eat a whole foods, um, you know, plant-based diet within, within a couple of months. So, you know, and it's because they're a part of it, you know, they're out there, they're seeing it, they understand it, they're participating in it, they help cook the food. Um, so, you know, it's remarkable, uh, but they respond beautifully. Mm, it's yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And I did read that only the most complex cases come to the center. Mm -hmm. Is that right? It is. Yeah. So especially in our residential program, you know, in order to qualify for the center for discoveries programs, you really have to, and this is, you know, this again is just a, a fault of the system. You have to be rejected, the, the child and the family, from the public school. So the public school has to say they can't take care of you. Then we have another layer called the BOCI system. They have to say, no, child you know, is too complex. We can't take care of them. Um, and then they have to you know, be able to apply to other residential programs, and then they can get to us. So I always say, by the time a parent gets to us, there, they've seen so many rejections and failures. It's, you know, we're doing a lot of work trying to mend how that family feels because they, they don't feel very good um, or they're very angry. So, yeah, so we take those, those children who really nobody else can care for. And typically they have pretty severe behaviors, either aggressive behaviors or self-injurious behaviors, which is why, you know, people say they can't take care of them. Mm. So there, there is that really complex profile. And those are the kids that we see have all of those co-occurring conditions, you know, at pretty extreme levels. Um, but we do through our clinic see children that, you know, are less complex. Um, so we do see the range of kids as well. And we do help inside school districts, you know, school districts will call and hire our staff to help them inside a classroom, you know, help teachers, you know, manage kids who are, who are less involved inside the public schools. Mm. So we have full range. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious, you said at the start that you have occupational therapists and speeches and traditional type therapists at the center. 
Do you follow a certain methodology in terms of ABA or, um, you know, social relational models or a bit of both or how, do, how does it work? It's a very eclectic model. So, yes, of course, we have, we have good um, behavioral techniques. You know, we have BCBAs there and we have our psychologists. And, um, but we look for the root cause of the behavior first and foremost. Like I'm not really quick to you know, develop a full behavioral program if a child is having an aggressive behavior. I want to understand that first. So, you know, um, do they have a toothache? You know, are they getting frequent headaches? Do they have underlying seizures? Is it that they're not sleeping at night? You know, um, what are their, what does their GI system look like? You know, what else is going on? Because behaviors just don't occur. And yes, we need to be able to manage them. So we need good techniques so nobody gets hurt. Um, and that's where our behavior specialists can help us. But we want to understand what's actually happening. Is it a sensory processing issue, you know, that's really overwhelming them? Um, and so the whole team comes together, you know, and looks at the profile of the child from every single aspect um, until we figure out what's causing it. So it's, you know, it's not simply a one shot, that's it, you know, we'll give this child a behavior plan and thing, things will be wonderful. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um now, could you give us any case studies of children with autism who have attended the center? Sure. Yeah. Um, there's one um, one boy in particular who you know I, I see all the time. So he's just he's a remarkable young man. Um, but he started at the center um, a couple of years ago now, four years ago. Um, he was expelled from school. He was 280 pounds. Um, about, you know, about, um, five foot nine, five foot 10, big, big, big boy. But he had, um, you know, pushed a teacher and, you know, um, really injured some other people in school. So they said, you know, we don't want him in school anymore. The parents were really struggling because, you know, nobody could help them in the home because he would have such explosive behaviors. So they actually ended up, um, and he didn't want to leave his bedroom anyway. So they actually ended up just having a program in his bedroom. He ate in his bedroom. He went, you know, he had a portable toilet in his bedroom. You know, he stayed on his computer all day. He was just an angry young man. Um, and they called us to say, look, they're, you know, we're either going to have to place him in what's called a forensic institution, which is for criminals, for individuals with developmental disabilities and criminal acts. And they said, he's either going to go there or can you help us? So, you know, we went down with the team and, you know, just saw the conditions and, you know, the parents were calling the police on him all the time and, you know, they were putting him in handcuffs. So we said, you know what, let's just, this is, this is really not going to be easy, but I, I don't want to see him go into a forensic and his parents didn't. So we said, let's, let's bring him in and see what we can do. Um, so we admitted him into the residential program and we started really, really slowly. He didn't want to walk even. I mean, he was just, he was just morbidly obese. He only ate pizza and a block of mozzarella cheese every day. Um, really, really unhealthy. And I think that's the reason that we said yes to begin with, because if anything, we knew that we could get him to eat our diet and maybe, you know, um, work on the obesity. Um, and so it took us, you know, it was the full team working with him for the first couple of weeks. And, you know, he would scream, you know, you're going down, you're going down. And, you know, it's what the police used to say to him. And, um, but he, you know, he started to respond to the program. We started to get him outdoors more and walking, um, didn't put a lot of pressure at first, started to just show him the foods, you know, let it, you know, be on a plate next to his plate. He didn't have to eat our foods yet. Um, but slowly but surely he started to come around and within eight months he had lost, um, almost a hundred pounds, you know, under the guidance of wow. a nutritionist. So yeah, um, he was, um, participating in most of our programs at that point. He was going to school on a regular basis. His really aggressive behaviors had really calmed down. And after about a year and a half, um, you know, his dad, you know, had sent us a letter, you know, Billy, uh, this, this young man was able to go to the prom. He had a date 
He was very excited about it. He participated in our prom. He went home for Thanksgiving dinner and sat at the table with his whole family for the first time. His mom said it was the first time in a decade that he actually sat at the table, used a fork and a knife, and there was no fear that he was going to throw that or do anything. And today, um, you know, he works on the farm. He, um, you know, is in charge of the chicken production. Uh, he's just remarkably goes to Main Street. He goes shopping. He interacts with people. Um, he still has autism. I mean, you can still hear that his voice is a little bit different. He can, he can get agitated sometimes, but at least he can say to you, look, I need a break. I can't handle this now. Um, but it was just, it was a remarkable, remarkable story. And we have so many like that, um, you know, kids who just were doing so poorly and now, you know, are, are back and they're part of their family, you know, and, you know, you actually, in a sense, you, you know, you help the whole family, the whole family is better then. So the parents aren't in crisis anymore and they're happy and their marriage is better. And absolutely, you know, absolutely. The whole thing changes for everybody. So those are remarkable stories, and we have a lot of them. We have ah, a lot of those. It's incredible, yeah. and I think it really gives parents hope that things yeah. can change and um, behaviors can change and just life in general. Um, like you said, for the family, it does. It totally impacts the whole family's day-to-day life. Um, life is stressful not only for the child but for the whole family. The whole family feels it, so... Um, I think that could be just the injection of hope that um, listeners could be wanting to hear today. Um, Absolutely. Now, you talk about in your book, Autism and the Stress Effect, this new framework of intervention based on a lifestyle approach. Um, sure. Could you talk about, because it's based on stress, um, could you talk a little bit about stress and how it affects children with autism? And then we'll dive into the, the, the four different components that you talk about in your book. Yeah, sure. Um, so we have um, a research um, program that we've been initiating or running for the past um, seven years now. And so it, it was sort of born out of observation of these kids, really looking at them, thinking that, you know what, they, they seem to be really stressed and then listening to families to say, you know, my kid is anxious all the time and the whole family is anxious, you know, and sometimes we go into homes and even the dog would be anxious because, you know, everything was so revved up. So um, we reached out to some folks at MIT um, just to say, look, we want, we want to be able to measure stress. We want to see if really what we're seeing is actually happening. So we want to know something about what's called the autonomic nervous system, um, whether that's activated all the time, and that would be a sign of chronic stress. So MIT had some research grade um, physiological monitors. And so it just looks like a wristband that the kids wear, but it's actually measuring what's called a galvanic skin response, which is sweat coming off the skin. And so when somebody goes into, you know, fight or flight, and that's part of this, you know, part of the anxious state, um, you know, the skin begins to perspire, the pupils dilate, the heart you know, rate increases, blood flow increases. So they're getting ready to run, right? As though, you know, it was a saber-toothed tiger from years ago coming after you. That system is so primitive, but it's it's what we have right now. So we did get the, the monitoring systems and we started to see the most remarkable things. Um, and that, you, you know, I'll give you just some examples. You know, a child would leave the classroom and drop to the ground, um, you know, just because of behavior, right? So they fall, you know, they drop to the ground and they're not going to move. And so, you know, our behaviorists who were there are saying, you know, it's because they don't want to go to the next activity, you know, so we need to figure out how to make that next activity more exciting or whatever. Um, or, you know, let's, let's see if we can't give them a reward and get them to go a little bit further or whatever. But what we saw on the monitors is that their heart rates were almost to the point where they were ready to pass out. They were so stressed because of the transition, just going through a door from a threshold to another, to another space, stressed them out so much that they just couldn't, they just couldn't do it. So, um, you know, we created these transitional benches. So when a child leaves the classroom, they can actually sit for a few minutes. The teacher will say, here's what's coming next. And their heart rates normalized. 
they didn't increase, they didn't get stressed, and they were able to go to the next activity. So there was nothing about the next activity that frightened them. It was just the unknown of going from one place to the next. And if they had the opportunity just to understand what was going to happen, they wouldn't get stressed. So we saw children like that. We saw children who parents would say to us or the teacher would say, out of the blue, they tipped the table over. Um, and we could see in our lab school that no, actually, that wasn't out of the blue. That child was showing signs of stress, you know, two, three, four, five minutes before that, sometimes even 15 minutes before that. Um, so there was a buildup of stress where you could have intervened and help that child before they just had this behavior. Mm. Um, the other th that we're seeing is that children after an event, after they do get stressed, after they do something, you know, um, it takes them a really long time to calm down. They may look like they're back, you know, and, and teachers will try and re-engage the child. They're now sitting and they're like, okay, let's continue on with the lesson. And then the child has the behavior again. They don't calm down, many of them, as quickly as typical kids. So there's a real sort of latency in, in that calming down period um, that, that people need to know, and at, know about and pay attention to. Um, we will have, we, our data is under um, analysis right now at the University of Missouri. And within the next couple of months, we should have some research papers coming out um, in, in peer-reviewed journals. So this, this will help the entire field better understand the stress system. But what it did, I think, for our staff and our families was confirm that there are other things going on with these kids. It really is not a behavioral disorder. There are absolutely underlying conditions that are stressing these children out that you can affect, you know, through simple techniques, through helping the child understand what's going to come next. Um, you know, medical problems definitely pile up. You know, there's no doubt that if a kid did not sleep well the night before, they're not going to do well in school. And that's true for any of us. So it's sort of common sense, but we, I don't know, for whatever reason, when it comes to these children, we throw common sense out the window sometimes, you know. Um, but what we see if a child doesn't sleep well through the night or whatever, their stress system is activated. Mm. So, you know, the problem is these kids, you know, are suffering from chronic stress. So there's a pile up of things. So what we try and do is is sort of untangle and, and take that pile away as much as possible and lift lift those things out um, or off of the child um, as much as possible so that so that they can function better on a daily basis. And that's, that's what the model was based on, understanding that these kids are experiencing so much stress. We sat down as a team to say, okay, what can we do? You know, what causes the stress? And what can we do to either alleviate the stress or help the body get healthier so that it can combat some of the stress. And that's, that's where the model, that's how it was born. I mean, really thinking about these kids, but having hard evidence. I mean, we absolutely have seven years worth of data on many, many children. So a huge corpus of data that, you know, nobody else has on these kids and no one really understands, especially in the population of, of really complex kids, because they're the ones you can't get into a laboratory setting. So you have to do it in real time. Mm. Um, and it's, I'll just say one other, one other thing, but it's not just the children wearing the monitors, the staff wear them too. Fantastic. And what, yeah. The mm. staff, I don't think we're, we're aware, you know, some of the staff would say, I'm, I'm very calm. And we, <laughs> we'd say, come here and let me show you what your monitor is showing us. Cause we can see that, you know, you, and we're saying you're really stressed. So you also need to do things you know, like, like, um, taking advantage of our wellness program, you know, our running program, <laughs> you know, those kind of things to help yourself, you know, so you can handle it better. Cause although you may not think you're stressed, you are. So, yeah. um, oh, I yeah. think it's great that measurable data. So you can have a look at it and then work out why, why is the behavior happening? What is the root cause? Um, That's right. and when you t talked about the, the child who would tip over the table, it just made me think of, um, I had a similar uh, client who was had, you know, really destructive behavior. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I think a lot of the time we, we found out later that it was because of a sensory overload. Um, so there is that underlying neurological complexity um, that often gets missed because everyone else doesn't tune into the hum of the air conditioner or the flickering light or the sound of the fan or whatever it is that's deeply irritating the child. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I just thought it'd be so interesting and you'd be able to find out so much quicker if we had these systems on the children to be able to tell us the build-up of stress so we can start tuning more into their world so we can find out what exactly is going on. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think they're becoming, you know, um, they're, they're much better quality uh, monitors that are out there right now. And I think Google has one now that I'm hoping that they're going to release. They're using it in research, um, you know, programs right now. So I think more and more um, these will become available. You know, when we started, you know, uh, our first one, believe it or not, because it did heart rate and heart rate variability as well, was $30,000. Wow. Um, now we can get them for 1500 that are research grade, <laughs> but we know that very soon they're going to be um, more affordable for families. You know, the, the $150 version of the Fitbit or whatever, those, those are going to improve. There's no doubt about it. There's a high demand. You know, I, I think, you know, just given chronic stress, sleep disorders, obesity in the general population. These are the kind of things that will really help people self-monitor and then we'll be able to use them for our kids. Mm. So it's coming. It is coming. Awesome. But we're a lot and I I hope that we can publish, you know, in the near future and really help more people become aware of this. So Because so many of the strategies that you use at the center can be used at home as well if parents knew what to do and your book autism and the stress effect everything's in here so um Mm -hmm. if parents grabbed a copy of that book they could start implementing strategies at home right now (laughs) exactly it was yes i wrote it for parents and um a lot of my parents um helped give input for that book absolutely these are the kinds of things that they're doing at home and it makes a huge difference um and it's not just a difference for the kid, it's a difference for the whole family. Mm. So everybody gets better, you know, um, you know, and that helps, it helps, yeah, everyone. Yeah. Absolutely. Can we dive into um, the four-step approach that you talk about in your book? So if you wanted to start maybe just a few simple strategies that parents can start using at home, um, so maybe start with environment. Sure. Um, what I always say to the parents is that, um, you know, in terms of the environment, there are three things. So there's the physical environment that they can take a look at in their house. And, you know, kids with autism um, need a fair amount of structure. Um, so, you know, if if they have a kitchen table that they use to eat at, um, and the kitchen table is also the place where you do your homework and do all of those things. Um, it's pretty confusing for kids. So if they could designate in their house, like this is the place where you do your homework and this is the place where we eat. And, you know, this is the place, you know, where we have our family games or whatever that is. But if they could um, organize the house a little bit more, and sometimes it's hard for families. Um, I've often advocated that, you know, there may be your next door neighbor or your best friend who's a really good organizer, like call on them and say, can you come in and just take a look at my house and see if there's a better way for me to do this? You know, um, just like our transitional benches at school where the child sits and they get organized. Um, those, those kind of things also help in, in the family's home as well. Um, you know, a bedroom should be for sleeping. Um, um, and, but if there's, you know, time after school that they go in there having a schedule. So the temporal part of the environment is also important when, when activities happening, happen, the time of those activities and making sure the kid understands that the child understands when things happen. So creating a schedule is also, you know, a way to help organize the environment for their child. Um, the other thing is the social environment. And, you know, I, I often say to families, look, your, your children don't need 10 friends. You know, they don't need five friends. One friend is really, you know, what a child needs to make a huge difference. So work with the school. Um, you know, maybe they can help with a play date. Maybe they can help your child form a relationship because that's really difficult for kids with autism. But, you know, just having a social environment with one friend um, can make a, a huge difference. Um, and just, 
you know, just try and keep it as positive as possible inside the home environment. And I know that's tough because everybody can get really stressed from time to time. But if you can really just keep the environment organized as much as possible. And as I said, call on other people to help. <laughs> that's what I always say. So that's what friends are for. You know, let them help you. Exactly. Um, yeah. So that's that's the environment part. And softer colors are always nice. You know, um, the light the light greens and the blues and those kind of things are calming colors. So, you know, as much as possible, if the environment could have those types of colors, and that's how our buildings are designed, those are the color palettes that we have, anything that we can do to reduce that stress is mm. really, really important. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like trying to create that, a really safe and secure environment for that, the child. Mm. That, that's exactly right. Yeah, the more you can do that, the less anxious they're going to feel. Yeah, mm. and the calm they're going to be. Yep, that's right. Great. Well, let's yeah. jump to the second step um, is eating, revolves around eating. Yes. What are your main tips here? Because, I mean, this can be so confusing, you know, for parents in general, but then for parents who find out they have a child on the spectrum, um, mm-hmm. where do they start? What I mean, there's so many different dietary approaches out there and you're, you're really bombarded with lots of different information and it can be an absolute maze trying to get yeah. through it. What, what's your recommendations? Yeah, our recommendation is really a whole foods plant-based diet, no matter what. Um, So some kids do okay with the gluten casein-free. It's really, really restrictive, and there can be um, some real nutritional problems with that diet if it isn't implemented in the way that it needs to. The, The research tells us, though, that only a few kids really respond to that. Um, you know, it's, it's a very small number that it really has, you know, has a major effect for the child. Um, so we really do promote, you know, uh, on a whole for, for a plant-based whole foods diet. Um, we recommend really staying away from processed foods. Um, and those are the foods that are sort of in the middle of the grocery store. The whole foods are in that perimeter. Usually most of them are refrigerated, um, you know, the fresh meats, the fresh vegetables, those kind of things. Um, and we, we say that because the processed foods, you know, if you look at the ingredients, they're not real. So your body is going to have a stress response. It's going to have a, an immune response to those foods. And so it's not, it's not good for you. It's not healthy, you know, in the end. So as much as possible, a whole foods plant-based diet is the best. And, you know, as I said, we work with hundreds of kids, the most severe kids, um, and every one of them does well on that plant-based whole foods diet. You know, really, we probably only have at this point uh, four kids that really need a gluten-free diet, and there's no doubt their behaviors get significantly worse, their GI problems get significantly worse when they have gluten. So that is real, but it's a really small percentage of kids. But I would start with the whole foods plant-based diet and see how the children do. Um, We have a whole program we talk about, just it's called the FED program. It's hard sometimes to get kids to eat that diet, but... Um, if you if you do it systematically, you can get the kids to eat. When you say yeah. plant based diet, you're not restricting meats at all, are you? No, 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 not okay. at all. Sorry, yeah, it's whole foods, plant based, but yeah. So the majority of, majority of it is the, our vegetables, but right. uh, no, we we have meats, we have chicken, fish, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. all red meats, yeah. But more more vegetables than meats, but absolutely, yeah, yeah. that's right. Okay, kids, kids need that. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, let's get into the emotional side of things yes so the emotional side is you know really obviously very very important um kids you know on the spectrum have difficulty regulating their emotions and they don't necessarily understand the emotions of others nor do they understand their own emotions so there are a couple of programs but the five point um likert scale really teaching kids um through visual um visual modeling um you know what it's like to be uh really really stressed and um, and the color coding of those things is really important so for our kids you know if they're feeling really stressed we'll show them a red a red dot and just say you know you're here right now and we want to get into the blue zone um so what are what are the kind of things that you need to do to get into the blue zone 
And we teach a lot of strategies like yoga, like meditation, you know, meditation in terms of how to breathe deeply, um, you know, anything, um, you know, going out for a run or something like that will help calm the child. So we give them a lot of strategies so that they, they themselves can begin to self-regulate um, because they just, without that, they, they don't understand it. Um, you know, we also teach a lot of, um, you know, techniques to read facial features. So we have a, a very big creative arts program. So kids are in plays. Um, they're acting out all the time. So you can be the angry lion today, or, you know, you can be the happy, you know, kangaroo, if you will, um, whatever it is, but we teach through that and the children love that. Um, and there's something that we're exploring right now. If you give children uh, a microphone and they can actually have a microphone and, you know, act out, they actually seem to learn much better and they seem to begin to understand um, voices better. So we don't have a lot of research on that, but we are going to start to study that. So there's there's something about that as well. Using Disney movies, of course, also seems to help. There's a safeness, but there's a lot of variability in voices there. So you can point out different emotions through the Disney movies if that's appropriate for the child. So there's lots of ways, but you, we need to understand that our kids you know, although we may look angry or whatever, they may not understand that at all, you know, and they don't even understand their own emotions. So we have to teach it. You know, they're not going to learn it vicariously. They absolutely must be taught. Mm. So mm. that's yeah. what I always say too. You know, we explicitly teach maths and English, um, but exactly. some kids need to explicitly be taught social skills because they're just not picking it up from the, their environment. That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. That's spot on. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So we have covered three of the steps. We've looked at the environment, we've looked at eating, and we've now just looked at the emotional. Um, let's dig into energy regulation. That's the fourth yeah. step. So, yes. Energy regulation is really important. Again, um, we're, we're working with children who don't have a good, what's called circadian rhythm. Um, so they're not sleeping well at night. They don't really have a good sense of day versus afternoon versus night. Um, so you have to have sort of anchors in the day and create really good routines for kids um, and give them visual schedules so they understand that so that, you know, they start to know when, you know, what time is breakfast. So it should be a, a fairly consistent time every morning. Um, when do they go to the bathroom? That should be a fairly consistent time. You know, when is lunch? Um, you know, when is dinner? So meal times are sort of those anchors that help create a circadian rhythm. Um, when do they have bath time or shower time? Um, that's also really important. When do the lights go down that prepares you for sleep? Those things are really important. Their systems are so dysregulated that they really don't have those natural rhythms. Um, so those anchor times are very, very important. Um, and they're important for families, I think, in general. And it's really hard because we're harried nowadays. You know, the one parent's working and this one's changing that routine. And, you know, there's a bit of frenetic energy around families. Um, but if you can move it back to just have some real routines that will help, you know, that child um, do better overall. Um, but sleep is really, really critical. And that's part of energy regulation. You know, kids need you know, a fair amount of sleep, um, depending on their age, some of them need up to 10 hours of sleep a night. Um, and yet we find, you know, for our kids that they're, they're often, you know, up during the night or they, you know, they don't fall asleep till very late or sometimes they don't sleep at all. Um, so having a good bedtime routine and Terry Katz is a sleep researcher. She and Beth Mallow, um, Terry's at a university of Colorado. She has a couple of books out on creating sleep routines. She's one of our faculty, um, but having a good routine is really, really important. And then um, I think that the big thing around energy regulation is making sure you're getting enough vigorous exercise. So John, John Rady um, talks a lot about vigorous exercise. He's probably one of the leading authorities on what exercise does to the brain and the neurotransmitters that get released and how you know, dopamine and serotonin and those things that are really important to help you stay calm are released during exercise. So all of our kids get a really heavy dose of <laughs> exercise. Yeah. Because and it helps them sleep through the night. 
Exactly. And I think we're living such sedentary lifestyles these days. You know, it's just in our culture. It's not deliberate a lot of the times that these kids aren't moving, but it is in our culture to come home and sit and watch TV or play PlayStation. Um, So these kids are being brought up in this environment. It's not like it was 50 years ago when we'd, you know, people would go outside in the street and play cricket um, on the road or in the park. Yeah, it's definitely changed. It sure has. And and kids with autism, because they have problems with the cerebellum, they're not very well coordinated. So they, they would rather sit on the couch with their iPad. You know, exercise is intimidating for it's, them. In it's that comfort so. zone, isn't it? That's their yeah. comfort zone. As soon as they try and yep. step out of that, that stress response starts to kick into overdrive because I don't know how to coordinate my body to do this movement. <laughs> so I'm going to just sit here because I'm, I'm safe. Yep. Mm. Stable and I'm safe. That's right. Yep, mm. yep. And yet they need to be moving. So that's the thing that's going to help all of that. So, yeah. It's a bit of a catch-22, isn't it? (laughs) Trying to work out how to juggle it all. Mm. Yep, that's Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're almost come to the end of our interview, but I do want to finish with the five rapid-fire questions. So (laughs) number one, what is one habit that parents can implement today? Um, I would start with either developing a really good um, sleep routine for the child or I would um, start dancing. Um, so exercise. So I always recommend to parents, like, do something fun, like get into, um, and I don't know if you have Zumba. I'm assuming you do Yes. in yes. Australia. Mm-hmm. So I would do Zumba every evening with my kid and let the whole family do it. You know, put on some crazy songs and move, but it's a really good way to start to get a child to exercise and the whole family. And it's a fun activity. Our kids love it. Absolutely love it. So I would do Zumba. Love it. Great. Number two, Mm -hmm. what do people never ask you that you wish they did? I wish they would ask more about friendships um, because I think, I think parents are overwhelmed. They do want their kids to have friends and they often think that they have to have a lot of friends and so I, you know, they don't often ask about that, but I often bring it up and just say, just develop one friend for your child that's going to make a huge difference. So um, I like, I, I like to talk about friends. friendships. with Lovely. Them. So yeah. important. Yeah. So important. Number three, what book would you recommend that all parents read? Well, besides mine, <laughs> I would say um, Spark. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's called spark. It's by John Brady. It's the, um, it's the relationship between exercise and the brain and what it does. So it's great. It's written for families. Um, a lot of school districts implement the spark program, but it's, it's very well done and it has all the science behind the exercise and it really, it'll make a difference. Um, in, in your life. So great. I haven't read it. I find every time I ask this question, I hear a different book that I haven't heard of, and I feel like I've read so many books, but there's just so many out there, isn't there? My gosh. There there are, absolutely. Yep. Great. Okay, so number four is what is one of your unfinished bucket list items? Oh, uh, my bucket list is so big. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think I'm going to, to finish my bucket list until parents feel hopeful. Until, you know, a child with autism is born and and we can say to that parent, we know what to do. Um, So all of the continued research, these things are all super, super important. So, yeah, it's it's big. Um, But I'd love to go to Australia. (laughs) I'll get that on my bucket list. Oh, great. We'd love to have you here. I'd love to have a center here, like the Center for Discovery. I mean, how amazing would that be that if there was one of those in every country? Absolutely remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number five, last question. If you could only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it be? Mm -hmm. Um, I think um, start slowly. Only, only do one thing. Like you know, you know, whether it's looking at the environment or starting an exercise program or you know trying to eat a little more um healthy um i would just do one thing and do it slowly you can't do it all at once you're going to be overwhelmed parents are stressed as it is so choose one thing um and don't put a lot of pressure on yourself um it takes time um but it can happen yeah yeah perfect that's lovely that's it's so true it's so true you've got to start small um with the big picture in mind but small steps that's right. That's right. 
Awesome. Yeah. So how can our listeners find out more about your work? Um, I do have um, uh, on Facebook, Autism and the Stress Effect, or even going to our website, which is the centerfordiscovery.org. Um, and people can, you know, tune in to what's happening at the center right now, um, you know, and see, see some of our videos and, you know, hear from some of our researchers. So that's probably the best way. Yeah, absolutely. And even on the Center for Discovery Facebook page, because that's where I did see one of the video clips. It was so heartwarming. It was of um, the, the kids did a Lion King play, I think it was, that's, a concert. Oh, that was just amazing watching. That was so beautiful, so beautiful. Yeah, that's part of the creative arts program. Yeah, yeah, it's remarkable. And if you do the stories behind those children, you would see. You would know how remarkable that yeah. really was. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So everyone jump yeah. on and follow. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Teresa. You are a game changer. You're a thought leader and an absolute trailblazer in the autism world. So it's been an absolute privilege to have you and soak up all your knowledge and wisdom. And, um, yeah, I love I love your way of thinking because it's how I think. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank- I'm really glad you had me. So thank you very much. I thank look forward you. to meeting you in person. Okay, <laughs> absolutely. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys, for listening. I really hope you got some value out of today's conversation. Now, I would love to connect with you. I am really active over on Instagram and Facebook, so I'd love it if you came over and you said hi. All you have to do is search Homebase Hope and you will find me there. Now, if you don't know already, I am a lover of essential oils and a doTERRA wellness advocate. I really believe in the value of essential oils. And if this is something that you would like to explore and learn how you can use them in your family's life, then please get in touch. I would love to connect with you. And also, if you head over to Homebase Hope website, so that's homebasehope.com.au, I have created lots of visuals and social stories. So visuals in terms of first then, choice boards, visual schedules for toileting, getting ready in the morning. I've done all the hard work for you. Um, These are printables that are available on on the website so you can access today. Finally, if you love this fortnightly injection of information, please subscribe to the podcast. All you have to do is head to iTunes and hit the subscribe button. And every fortnight, you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. If you do like the show, please jump on iTunes and leave a five-star review so more people can discover this podcast and so we can inspire positive change for more people living on the spectrum. You can access all of the show notes and other episodes at homebasehope.com.au. And until next time, guys, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.